Welcome to A Load of BS, the behavioural science podcast with me, Daniel Ross. If you're in the mood for listening to the sharpest minds talking absolute BS, you're in the right place. Which naturally brings me to my guest, Gerald Ashley. And as we've done in the past, today is part one of two. I think bite size is more digestible and there's no harm in a gentle pause between this week's very savoury smack in the face of Beef Wellington before indulging next time in the palate cleansing ice cream finale. Gerald has years of experience in financial markets, from Bering Brothers to Dow Jones to the Bank for International Settlements, so he's been exposed to a fair share of BS in his time. He's now a speaker, advisor, broadcaster and writer on change, risk and decision making. Indeed, Gerald is one of the doyens on these subjects. He's insightful, warm and entertaining, with a keen ear and eye for our delusions and dogma, both of which he's quick to quash in this conversation. Today we're talking about birds foraging for food and what that teaches us about dramatic change in decision-making cycles. We talk about our model mania. We want to model everything and assign it a risk probability. Quick spoiler folks, you can't do it. We discuss the difference between risk and uncertainty and Gerald explains nighty and uncertainty and how credit card data is so very different from terrorist attack data. And as always, there's a book recommendation or two. Enjoy the show! Gerald, welcome to A Load of BS. It's great to have you along today. Uh, Well, Daniel, thank you very much. Now, beyond my own cold of last week, we've had a few technical glitches which have delayed our start. I suspect they reflect both our own inadequacies, but also some, dare I say, system fragility, a subject we may address later in our conversation. Anyway, we have finally reached the start line, which is fantastic. Now, Gerald, your BS mastermind are the subjects of change, risk, and decision-making. Our yeah. world is, is is so full of uncertainty and unpredictability right now, whether your radar points to the ongoing impacts of Hurricane Ida in Louisiana and Mississippi, another autumn of COVID perhaps, or how the Taliban government will behave beyond its recent PR brushstrokes, or even what on earth the future of UK healthcare will look like. This seems to me a very opportune time to address the subjects of risk and uncertainty, their differences, uh, and how we make decisions under such conditions. That's true. I would quickly say, as a spoiler to start with, things are always uncertain. So we have a a tendency to have a vividness bias of seeing what's immediately in front of us. But if you go back through time, times are always uncertain. And of course, we really dislike it. This is so true. And that's a lovely premise, or starting point at least, for what we'll discuss a little later. So an entry point into this discussion is I wanted to actually first talk about your personal journey into behavioral science, because despite having spent your distinguished career in financial markets, your interest in BS was really sparked through the study of zoology, in particular, Oxford University's Professor John Krebs's research on how birds forage for food. How do we connect bird feed and BS? Well, let me explain what happened. I spent a lot of time in financial markets, as you say, and I became increasingly disillusioned with the way risk was treated. It was treated as a sort of mathematical puzzle that could be solved. And we saw all sorts of very early warning signs going all the way back to 1987 and the crash of 87, where people were worried that there was so-called program trading and that computers were taking over the market. Maybe more, a little bit more recently, but still ancient history, 19. 
1995, the LTCM crisis, where really a bunch of boffins created a sort of investment algorithm, all mathematical, that pretty much trashed a large part of the bond and equity markets during that summer. That was actually a big crisis, but seems to have got a little bit forgotten. So when I sort of drifted out of finance, for a better phrase, into, uh, for want of a better phrase, in the early 2000s, in a way, I was hunting around to see what else was about was interesting. And I was struck by an article in Financial Times, which you mentioned uh, was about Professor John Krebs, now Lord Krebs, and looking at the idea of how birds forage for food and what that means and can apply to finance. Now, this may seem a hell of a stretch, but in very simple terms, birds, as do many animals, have sort of patches or forage areas that they use to get their food. And they have a run rate in the same way as we have a run rate in that they spend calories every day. So they've got to kind of top up to stay alive. And of course, they're in in a cyclical market because you've got fruit and nuts and berries and all the rest of it that are in surplus in the summer and shortage in the winter. So there's lots of cyclical things going on. Through evolution, birds have got very good at dealing with that. But what they're not very good at dealing with if this is a disruptive change. So if there is a dramatic change in that cycle, let's say the winter just keeps going on, spring doesn't arrive and things never turn the corner for better food source, they're faced with a really difficult dilemma. Do you hang on and hope the cycle turns up or do you move to a new unknown forage area where there will be competitors, maybe very aggressive competitors, plus you spend even more calories to get there. So now I think you can start to see the outlines of how a lot of our decision making is like this. Some things are pretty cyclical. There seems to be a business cycle at the sort of cliched level. We drink more beer, eat more ice cream in the summer and more soup in the winter. There are lots of cyclical things in our life and in the economy. And every now and again, we get a disruption. And so it was from that background, I started to think, well, yeah, there are kind of two modes or two states of the world here, aren't there? There's a sort of steady cyclical stuff. And then there's the stuff that comes out of the blue. So that that was my starting point. And that's interesting. You actually, you kindly shared a recent academic paper with me about birds, which supports this view that it was talking about the new Caledonian crow and that they have these human-like planning powers. In other words, they're able to choose the right tool to carry out the right future task. The thesis saying that crows and humans actually shared a common ancestor over 300 million years ago, which actually, if so, opens up this fascinating world to understand further how animals plan for future events. I wonder how much some non-human animals assess the future beyond immediate present risk? And if so, what on earth can we learn from that? And how do they have the ability to think in an abstractive way? Because it is an abstract world where you're trying to dream up what's not happening now, but what may be happening in January or this time next year or in five years' time. So as you say, it's a very fascinating area. For any listeners who want to dive into this a little bit, even in a fairly shallow way, if you look up evolutionary biology, that's quite a rabbit hole to go down in terms of looking at decision-making. Quite interesting area. Absolutely. And continuing the thought experiment on birds, coming back momentarily to your BS mastermind, if I may call it that, one of the topics that you've written about extensively is change. In fact, you published a book on the subject, Two Speed World, Incremental versus Disruptive Change. And you just talked about birds using their past experience, or we might call that in human terms, using data to adapt and survive. And that approach works, right? When change around us is small, you were you 
you were you were starting to touch on touch on this idea, but neither they birds nor we can predict what you'd call disruptive change or what Nassim Taleb would call a black swan event. We can't, in other words, model everything. So yeah. my question is, why is it important to make a distinction between these different speeds of change, and what are its implications on our behaviour? Well, in a, in, in a sense, you've answered your own question because we can't model it. And so this is a big problem in terms of there is a tendency for us to want to model everything. In fact, I think we live in an age of model mania. And the reason is because we've got the tools that allow us to do it, which is quite different from whether we it's always appropriate to do it. I mean, you just think back 10, 20, certainly 30 years ago, the capacity increase in bandwidth, in uh, data storage, distributive computer systems, the whole business of being able to collect data, slice, dice, and do whatever you like with it is overwhelming. And it's very attractive. Oh, look, let's get all the data. Let's analyze it. Let's look for patterns, which in itself can be dangerous because humans are sort of pattern hunting machines. So it's very easy to get sucked into dreaming up all sorts of wrong correlations and firmly finding the wrong conclusion. So we've got a world where one area is very data rich and we are prone to overanalyze it and I would call that risk and we can come back to talk in more detail about that and the, the other part of the world is the disruptive world where something happens completely out of the blue the famous one being Donald Rumsfeld's unknown unknowns now if you think about that that's a world where we don't have any data so we're doing this interview now but maybe there's a sort of missile coming our way that's going to blow us up an intercontinental ballistic missile of some sort we don't know about it. Hopefully, UK air defence do. But you, you see the point that there are some events, because there is no past data and no early warning signal in the future, they are unknowable. And so they're unpredictable. Now, we hate that because we like to predict everything. So there is a tendency to overuse what we may call risk models, which have lots of rich data, into areas where there isn't enough data to come up with any sensible ideas or, or ways forward. In engineering, there's something that's quite nice. It's called stick shift. And this is a concept of there are normally two modes going on in a lot of things in engineering. Imagine a, a table, I don't know, with a glass or a plate on it, and you slightly tip that table. And initially the plate doesn't move it sticks there's plenty of maths to explain that that's quite an explicable area and then all of a sudden it starts sliding down the table as you tip it a little bit higher you tip the table higher now that also when it is moving is very predictable in fact you can really model exactly the speed of the plate and all the rest of it the tricky bit is when it moves from stick to shift. That is extremely difficult to deal with. There are examples in the natural world of this. So physicists call this phase transition. And a really good example is when you put water in the fridge. So you've got water and it comes out as ice cubes. At some point, it coalesces. That is a, not a perfect example because that sort of happens relatively slowly. So there is an element of predictability in it. But there are plenty of areas in engineering and physics where that move from one state to the other is very unpredictable. One might even say unknowable. So translating that into how you think about your business risk, if you have a very stable business, which is quite cyclical, maybe a bit like our birds eating earlier on, you can model most of what you need to do. You've got loads of back data 
data. You've got lots of sensible algorithms that, that make reasonable assumptions. But if you are hit by a disruption, those models may not only be useless, they may be royally misleading. But don't you think, I mean, apart from anything else, you know, measuring risk and probability despite the comfort of models is still a fool's game, isn't it? We can't really pretend we understand risk, can we, despite having reams of data? Gold bit data comes from the past, of course. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an underlying sort of transaction that goes on that we never talk much about, which is between the buyers and sellers of models. The buyers of models, of which I think we all are to an extent, are trying to buy certainty. So if you rock up and say you've got a model that can help me with decision making or running my business or running the government or the military or anything, I'm very keen on that. And I think that's fantastic. And particularly if it seems very mathematical. So it's got lots of clever maths. It's all been sort of developed by guys with PhDs in maths and physics and Lord knows what else. And it seems to get a gloss of importance, which may be misplaced. What's going on here is that we as buyers of certainty are, you know, really keen on this. We just love the idea of, oh, give me the solution. And here's a model that gives me the solution. The problem is that the sellers, the people who created the model, maybe the boffins or the people who've been crunching away lots of past data, often just deliver the answer or their sort of answer. It may be framed around a distribution curve of potential outcomes, but essentially it's marketed as a solution. And of course, it can't be a solution. It's just an approximation of what may happen. It may be a very accurate approximation. And of course, underpinning all models is the thing that the buyers never think about, and the sellers need to talk a lot more about, which is the assumptions that have gone into the model. Any model that you see, by definition, has to have some rules of the game or some guidelines and underlying assumptions into how that data is modeled. That's before we get onto the ticklish topic of what is data. Is it normalized? Is it nice and constant? Or is it very bitty? So I think you can start to see where the trouble comes when people sort of, I wouldn't say worship, that's too strong a word, but almost blind faith in models. And that, that is dangerous. It is dangerous because, of course, one black swan event, or even less dramatically, call it a single change in context, can change human behavior significantly and can so completely eradicate the past ability to predict the future, right? Yeah. And I think you actually touch on another important thing. We all have a tendency to fall in this trap of seeing everything as being a little too static. You know, I do A plus B, so it must equal C. Well, the world is much more dynamic than that and flexes around. And the important thing is that it doesn't flex around in a nice linear fashion. Again, for listeners, if they're looking to dive into something, it's well worth looking at introductory pieces on complex adaptive systems. This is the idea that the system itself flexes and adapts as all the things around it change. And after a while, you begin to think, are we trying to nail jelly to a wall? It's very dangerous to think that you can have a nice static answer from using what, by definition, is static data because it, it's past data. There's a quote by, uh, quite a well-known quote by President Eisenhower, or General Eisenhower as he was during the Second World War, saying that plans are useless, but planning is essential. And that kind of sums that up. 
plans are static, planning is dynamic. And I think that's a very important distinction. Mike Tyson said something a little, perhaps more more prosaic, that, you know, it's all very well having a plan, but once you get punched in the face, (laughs) it has less value. There are a number of these around. I mean, I think there's one by the German or Prussian general in the Franco-Prussian War von Molke, who said, all your plans go out the window on first contact with the enemy. That's not the precise quote, but that's, that's a general theme. So you can plan to death, but when reality hits your plan, are you flexible enough to continue? And that's that leads us down to this whole area about are we resilient enough or do we have enough spare resource to deal with things we're not expecting to have to deal with? Let's come back to the question of resilience. I just wanted to cut touch quickly before we close on co- when you mentioned complex adaptive systems. Just for the benefit of readers, are you able to put any writers' names on that just so if people are interested in the subject, they can search? Actually, it's quite tricky. There's a lot of academic papers out there. There's a guy called Eric Beinhocker, who's written a very long book, which is in fact split in two, really. It's so long. And for the life of me, I can't remember the precise title, but it's about the generation of wealth and how economies really work. It's a popular science book, so it's not a heavy read. It's just a very long read. But as I say, Eric Beinhocker, he's an academic in the States, I believe. Also, for people on Twitter, take a look at the Santa Fe Institute, which is a fascinating outfit of scientists and sort of very clever thinkers really trying to address this whole idea of looking at how the network in which we operate flexes and moves around. So I would recommend that. Great. And we'll add those thoughts to the show notes so people can check them out. Let me some try and summarize some of the things that you've just been saying. It's clear that we don't like disruptive change because it's irregular, because it's unpredictable. And as humans, we want to put everything on a risk scale. We want to give it a probability. More data, more information, more sources of it encourage us to do that. What are the obvious pitfalls when we muddle risk and uncertainty? I always end up talking about a guy called Frank Knight. And Frank Knight was an economist who was around almost now exactly 100 years ago. In fact, he he wrote his main book on uncertainty exactly 100 years ago. And Frank Knight suffers from one problem in life. He was an extremely distinguished economist. He set up the Chicago School of Economics, but he was the second most famous economist during his time. The most famous, of course, being John Maynard Keynes. Uh, Everybody knows Keynes. I think you probably get the occasional cab driver who can quote Keynes, whether it's accurate or not, that may be another matter. But Frank Knight is somewhat overshadowed by Keynes, which is a shame because he tried to coin the phrase Knightian uncertainty. And of course, that doesn't exactly trip off a tongue. We don't use it every day. So I think we can say he failed in that endeavor. But what he showed was if you can visualize a vertical axis of information with zero at the bottom and 100% information at the top. Now, philosophers are going to steal in here straight away and say, well, nothing is 100% certain by definition. Gödel's mathematical theories in the 1930s prove that you cannot absolutely prove things and you get into a little bit of a loop there. But for the purposes of this talk, let's say there is something that is 100% certain or very close to it. And right at the bottom is what we were just talking about, which is Rumsfeld unknown unknowns when you have zero information. Now, if you can imagine a triangle that slides from the top of 100% and goes across on the horizontal axis. So we slide down from one 
100% to 0%. And the x-axis, the horizontal axis, is essentially a little bit fluffy, to be honest. It's trying to say at what point closer to the origin is this risk, and as we slide down the triangle, do we end up in uncertainty? And the key element is how much information we have. So where we have very high levels of information, we can pretty much use very straightforward, robust risk models. So let's take an example of a credit card company. Credit card business has been going on, what now, since the 1950s, uh, took off in a big way in the 1960s. There is a titanic amount of sort of bad data, and you can tie that to a sort of credit cycle, how interest rates move, whether consumer spending is going up or down, whether the economy is doing well, whether there's going to be unemployment or not. So the credit card companies can, with a degree of certainty, that dreadful word again, but with a degree of certainty, they can get some idea of how to model the future behavior of the people they've issued credit cards to. So that's very high up the sort of information scale. I don't know, let's let's guess a number. Let's say yeah, it's between 80 and 90%. And it makes perfect sense to use quite straightforward statistical tools to build risk profiles of the sort of amount of risk that the credit card company wants to take. Now, down the other end, let's take something where there's very little data or it's very patchy. It's certainly not nice and homogenous and nicely normalized like credit card data. Let's take terrorist attacks. So terrorist attacks tend to be, I wouldn't say unique, but they tend to be slightly different in each case. There's very patchy data. They don't happen in a regular way, thank God. So it's very difficult to use risk tools for that. And this is the area nighty and uncertainty. So nighty and uncertainties do not lend themselves to risk models. Now, just one last thing to say about terrorist attacks, which is interesting, is that they seem to cluster. You tend to get a few of them at the same time. This might be copycat attacks. It might be a number of terrorist cells working in concert. So there are some patterns, but you sure as hell can't use the same sort of techniques as you would for running a credit card company. The trouble comes, I think, when as we slide down that triangle, so just again, visualize the vertical axis is declining down to 60, 50, 40% information, that we still try to use standard risk management tools. And so we're searching for the solution. We want to grab at the certainty of the model, but it's becoming built on shakier and shakier ground until you're in quicksand when you're down to only a few percents of knowledge. Just to make things worse, of course, it's very difficult to stand outside a system and say with any certainty how much information we're truly seeing, which was a nice little insight by Nassim Taleb. Here's something that just wasn't on your radar, but it's not that it's necessarily uncommon. It just isn't on your uh, metrics or scales of how you look at things. So suddenly now you can see that there's lots of stuff that makes sense to measure risk with, but certainly not for uncertainties. You asked the question yourself, continuing this discussion on data, you said, what is data? A very big discussion. And I'm tempted to ask you, without taking us down a huge rabbit hole, but how do you start to even unpack your own question? I mean, I think the first thing you say is, by definition, you're looking in the rearview mirror, you're looking at what has happened. Then it's a question of 
whether you can be confident if you've got a substantive data set and you can never fully know. Is it all nicely ordered and organized or is it in a complete mess? Does it lend itself to, dare one say, digital manipulation? You know, the fact that it is normalized. Also, there there will be gaps. There's also a, a terrible thing. We have a tendency to fill gaps in. Sometimes we, um, in models, people talk about bootstrapping and this is where they leap over any sort of gaps in, in the data to hopefully still have a consistent answer. So there is no easy answer to what data is other than there's stuff in the past and whether we've recorded it and stored it. We're doing a hell of a lot more recording and storing of everything. Whether we're making good use of it, I'm a little bit doubtful, to be honest. Well, it's fair to say that we're nevertheless rather obsessed and seduced by it, data that is nowadays. And bringing the discussion to data plus connectivity or connection network, there is a belief that the more connections, the more information and more choice makes us more resilient, more efficient. But a very recent example, you know, the pandemic challenges that position. There are other examples because it illustrates a massive system fragility, which, by the way, may in time make us stronger, going back to... Taleb's uh, anti-fragility argument, but the pandemic did burst another bubble, did it not, as regards our belief in our own resilience? I think that's true, but let's just wind back slightly and see why connectivity in its really broader sense seems to be a good thing. Go back to Samuel Morse and the creation of the telegraph and Morse code and all the rest of it, which I think is about the 1850s. This is a big leap forward. The fact that you could, in London, via a transatlantic cable in the 1860s, get New York share prices. They didn't flutter around on the screen like they do nowadays. I think it was just a daily quote. But nevertheless, the world got a, a lot smaller and, of course, a lot more efficient. And from efficiency gains, we normally generate wealth and we normally generate more creativity. So you see that a lot of the breakthroughs in human development are around the ability to communicate more effectively, more quickly, more deeply. I mean, we simply couldn't have done what we're doing now 20 or 30 years ago. We could have rocked into a studio somewhere and found somewhere to do it and probably would have had to record it all on reel-to-reel tape, but it would have been a very clunky affair compared to now. So there is a drive towards being more and more connected. And I'm going to have another go at um, trying to draw a sort of diagram for you in your mind. This time, I want you to think of the uh, y-axis, the vertical axis, as connectivity. And I think on the bottom, we could put efficiency. We could put a number of different measures, but let's put efficiency. There seems to be a point that this goes up in an arc. Nobody wants to be in a random situation. Everything completely random. You no network. You've got no support. So the more connected you are, the more resilient you become. And so you could say growing connectivity leads to growing resilience. There seems to be a sweet spot at the top where that arc starts to fall over. And we get to a point where we superficially are getting more efficient. We're creating more connections. But actually, the overall model may be becoming more fragile. A nice mental picture, if you like. The dominoes are too close together. This, I think, did definitely shown in the pandemic. And in fact, the government did exactly what makes sense in terms of this thinking. They tried to disconnect people a bit. So travel became restricted. Going to see elderly relatives and keeping your distance in shops and all this stuff was to slow down and actually make the world, in some terms, a little less connected so that the virus 
just found it difficult to keep spreading, or at least hopefully slow it down. This is completely analogous with having fire breaks in forests, for example. No fire breaks, you, you know, you're asking for trouble. Indeed, we see it in electronic trading. I mentioned in 1987 crash at the start, and there was this concept of program trading. And this was slowed up by putting in certain so-called circuit breakers so that, in fact, the market didn't just spin endlessly out of control. It had to stop and pause for a bit before starting sort of second round of trading. And anything that puts a break into these systems of connectivity at some point make them far stronger. But there is a cost in doing it. You know, the world's a little less efficient now, isn't it? It's at the time of uh, recording today, I, I don't think anybody in the UK is allowed to fly to the States for example, which seems completely mad from two years ago. Obviously, or hopefully, we will all connect at some point, but it may be in a slower, more difficult manner, you know, lots of paperwork and vaccine passports, etc. There ends part one with Gerald. Next time, we talk about our overconnected world, BS party tricks and unsettling science. If you enjoyed today, please leave me a five-star review. Subscribe on Substack and your podcast provider, take a screen grab and share it on Twitter. And if you've done all those things, get a load of BS tattoo on your hand and use it as an icebreaker back in the office. See you next time.